What are the biggest cybercrime threats facing Europe, and how must businesses improve their cybersecurity practices to better defend themselves? Hi, I'm Matthew Schwartz, Executive Editor for Information Security Media Group. I'm speaking with Raj Samani, who's Vice President and Chief Technology Officer for Europe, the Middle East, and Africa for security software firm Intel Security, formerly known as McAfee. Raj, you're a cybercrime advisor to Europol. How do you see cybercrime evolving and some of the challenges facing organizations in Europe today? When I look at cybercrime, I mean, the reality is actually I've got it kind of all wrong. And I'm happy to hold my hands up. You know, in the past, I kind of used to say, well, you have traditional crime and you have cybercrime. And I was challenged on this point a little while back. I was in New York. And I remember I gave my presentation and I made this statement. And afterwards, a researcher came to me and said, well, what do you mean? It's a different area of crime. And I said, well, you have traditional crime and then you have cybercrime. And she said to me, she said, well, name me one crime that wasn't there, that hasn't evolved. You name me one crime which is only cyber related. And I said, well, you know, obviously DDoS, distributed denial of service attacks. That really didn't occur beforehand. And she said, well, no, but Raj, we had this before. People just used to go around and smash the windows of shops. That was a DDoS attack. You know, slowly but surely, I kind of came to the realization that I was horribly wrong. And I think what we're seeing and what we're really witnessing today is a real evolution of traditional crime to be either cyber-dependent or cyber-enabled in some way, shape, or form. We've got wonderful examples. I say wonderful, but we've got some remarkable examples. For example, buying drugs today. Well, you know, we're seeing the Silk Road trial. There was no need for you to have to go out and buy them. You can basically order them online. Equally, the acquisition of firearms, that can all be done online as well. Even now, you saw the Silk Road trial come up and hiring hits were now done online as well. And that's obviously a transition of traditional crime. But equally, we published a number of reports and I wrote a couple of research reports, cybercrime exposed, digital laundry and jackpot. And every single component required for the crime, whether it's carrying out the attack, whether it's you know, the payment mechanisms or even money laundering, it is now transitioning over to having a cyber component of it. So if we look at the entire environment with regards to crime, and cyber should not be seen as a separate entity. It shouldn't be seen as a, well, okay, there's crime and then there's the cyber component of it. Actually, it is part of traditional crime and it's part of the natural evolution of crime. So I think, you know, when we look at the world as we see it today, we're seeing the natural progression from a bank robbery is no longer carried out with a gun, it's carried out with a USB stick. And we will continue to see that, that evolution continue. And looking back, is it any surprise that so much crime has gravitated online, everything from ordering hits to drugs to firearms, given the potential cost upside and also opportunity for anonymity? And are law enforcement agencies struggling to keep up? With CSIS, think tank based out of Washington, we wrote two reports actually called Estimating the Economic Impact of Cybercrime. But one of the quotes that we had within the report was we said, actually, there's a perverse set of incentives for criminals to use cyber. And by that, what we mean is the returns are high, I mean, incredibly high. And the risk associated with cyber is considerably lower than what it would be using traditional. And what I mean by risk is, A, you know, the risk of getting caught, the risk of getting identified is lower because no longer do you have to be in the same country as your victim to carry out the attack. You can actually be sitting in the bedroom halfway around the world carrying out an attack against somebody in a nation that you've never been to and you have no intention of going to. And equally, the risk of physical harm is almost eliminated as well. No longer do you have to walk into a bank with a balaclava and potential of being shot, but actually you can do this over a computer and over a sort of connection as well. So what we're seeing really is this set of perverse incentives. And I think one of the challenges that we face as a society is 
the lowering of the technical requirements for a cyber criminal. In other words, many years ago, if you wanted to be a cyber criminal, you used to have to have technical skills. We then migrated to a scenario whereby you needed to know somebody with technical skills, as we saw in 2006 with the Zotob one. And actually, just a few years back, you know, you needed to be able to find the sites within the dark net to be able to buy and acquire these services. Today, you don't need to do that in any way, shape, or form. In fact, the technical skills required to become a cyber criminal are almost zero. All you need is a means to pay, and even that payment may mechanism doesn't have to be your own card. Is there perhaps a double-edged sword, hopefully, for criminals in that the same tools that they're using to launch these attacks could theoretically be A, traced back, and B, used to convict them? In the case of the Silk Road trial, invariably what happened was this particular individual made some mistakes. They were using a standard email client as a means to drum up business. And obviously, you know, they got identified that way. But, you know, I don't believe that there is such a thing as absolute 100% anonymity slash privacy. Because, you know, at some point, even though this particular individual was going over a communications medium that he believed was maintained his anonymity, and even though this particular individual was using a payment method, which was what we would call pseudo anonymous, this particular individual still slipped up and made mistakes. And we as a society just have to find ways to investigate these individuals. And we've seen the successes of this. I mean, Dark Market was as far back as, what, 2006? And in that particular scenario, there was a closed network of individuals who sort of knew each other online. And yet we saw examples where, you know, a law enforcement agent was able to breach that particular environment by going undercover. So individuals will continue to make mistakes. And whether you're using technologies which you believe will make you safe, at some point, you know, like you saw with Albright, individuals make mistakes. And I kind of want to pick up on your point about law enforcement struggling. I think it's easy to say, well, law enforcement is struggling because actually when we see the number of threats that we see a day, I mean, we published our quarterly threat report and we see 307 new threats a minute. And so it's easy to say, well, law enforcement is struggling, but we have to recognize and realize that we're fighting the 21st century problem with 20th century tools. What I mean by that is the world as we know it operated with this scenario of jurisdiction. In other words, this particular agency has responsibility for this particular jurisdiction. You know, let me give you an example. I gave a briefing to um, law enforcement agents in a country out in the Middle East not so long ago. And I was asked the question and they said, well, you know, why is there such a rise in this particular threat? Why are we seeing such a high number of attacks? And I said, well, let me ask you a question. I said, you know, how many people are in your country? And they said, well, okay, there's about, let's say, 50 million people in our country. And I said, how many policemen do you have protecting those 50 million people? And he goes, about 30,000. And I said, how many people could potentially target your citizens? And he goes, well, 50 million people. So you have 50 million people targeting potentially 50 million people with 30,000 policemen. And I said, now switch it to cyber. And I said, well, you have 50 million people that you want to protect. How many people are they at risk from? And he goes, well, potentially the whole world. And I said, and how many cyber policemen do you have? In other words, how many policemen do you have within the cyber crimes unit? We counted around the room, and at the time there were 12. And so, you know, that's, I guess, some of the challenges that we face. Really, then we've got to start to get to this concept of, you know, collaboration. And it's not just law enforcement collaborating with law enforcement, which is absolutely imperative, but equally collaboration with the private sector as well. How can you begin to sort of collaborate and work together to be able to combat this threat as a society? So, like I said, you know, this is a 21st century problem. And really, the frameworks, in other words, you know, the jurisdictions, the boundaries, and, and the world that we live in are firmly entrenched in, well, not even the 20th century, right, in the 15th century.
Speaking of collaboration between law enforcement agencies and then also the benefit of collaboration between law enforcement agencies and the private sector, it seems like we've been seeing evolving models of collaboration. You work with EC3, for example, and that is a group of European police agencies. Here in the United Kingdom, we've seen moves to centralize some of the cybersecurity investigations that happen as well. There seems to be a trend to try and centralize resources whenever possible, both inside countries and across countries. Is that a trend that you've been seeing? And is this something that's happening with a lot of thought behind it? So I think the intention and the motivation, and this is not just from a law enforcement perspective, but also a private sector perspective, is to at best de-conflict cases. The reality is that there's so much out there, there are so many threats out there, that the only way we're going to be able to combat this in the first place is if we begin to eliminate these deconflictions. So in other words, how can we make sure that the same companies or the same agencies aren't working on the same case and potentially duplicating efforts? How can we get to a scenario whereby if you are investigating this particular issue, or we've seen some great research from some of our competition recently as well, how can we be in a scenario whereby when you go out to press with regards to this and when you go to the media, that when consumers start screaming, well, actually, am I infected or not? How can we best provide an industry response? And I think you've seen the fruits of that labor over the last 12 months. You've seen a number of coordinated collaborative takedowns specifically around certain threats. I mean, EC3, and we talk about EC3, but they've been hugely successful on the takedown of sites within Tor, within credit card fraud rings, and others, to name just a few. And so how do we best combat this and what sort of models are we seeing? Regardless of the model that's being used, the purpose and of what we have to try to achieve is how can we better utilize the resources that we have as a society? How can we best ensure that we don't duplicate our efforts? And more importantly, and to me, you know, one of the biggest challenges is how can we begin to really ingrain the necessary steps for every single internet citizen out there to be aware of some of the scams and the tricks so that they're not victims of this because it's easy to lose sight of why we're doing this. It's easy to turn around and say, well, you know, cybercrime is worth X billion dollars a year, which is a big figure. But actually, it's people like my parents, people like my friends, people like your friends that are having money stolen from them, that are having their identity stolen from them, that are having their reputations besmirched on digital medium. It's our children who are falling victim to these crimes who are being bullied when actually people have no visibility of that. That's the reality of what we're trying to achieve. And I think it's important we don't lose sight of what actually is happening out there. So it sounds from a thematic standpoint, like we're talking broadly about educating people when it comes to resisting crimes, bullying, other ways that they can be used or abused online. We're talking about information sharing, I think, both with law enforcement agencies and inside the private sector. And then, of course, obviously, we have technological defenses. Would those, you think, be the three of the big themes that people need to focus on when they're looking at ways of better combating cybercrime? It's a process. And it will continue. When we talk about educating people, it's not something that we can just do once and then kind of walk away from. In fact, the reality is what we've seen over the last, what, 12 years since the rise of, let's say, Anna Kornikova, which really began to use social engineering, is the types of fear phishing emails you're getting are really leveraging subconscious techniques in an attempt 
to manipulate or bypass your conscious defenses. What I mean by that is, yes, the number of people falling for 419 scams have reduced because people are now aware of that. But actually, the bad guys are kind of going, well, we're going to try something new. And, you know, there's a new threat that we're beginning to see now where actually it's not just cyber. It's also using telephones and so forth. So we have to continually go down this path of making sure that people understand the value of the information that they have such that as and when these attacks begin to morph and become more sophisticated in an attempt to bypass your conscious defenses. Yes, there is technological defenses, absolutely. And as a security vendor, we will continue to innovate and do considerable amounts of research and development to make sure that we stay one step ahead. But more so, yes, there's the information sharing agreements. And really what that is, is better public-private partnerships. So we as a society begin to combat this. And that will be tactical, that will be operational and others as well. Those are some of the foundations that we need and that we continue to need. One of the topics that I hear most about from readers are these scams where they get called up and someone's pretending to be from Microsoft technical support. This is psychological. Actually, the psychologist Caldini talks about six subconscious techniques that are used for influence. In other words, there are six subconscious levers that I can use to influence you to do something or get you to sort of perform some sort of action. And those types of scams kind of fall directly within that in that they use authority. In other words, they manipulate the target to make them believe that they have the authority to be able to carry out some sort of action. But whether it's Microsoft, whether it's the ransomware scams, I mean, there was that dreadful story of that young boy that hung himself because he got that email purporting to be from the police. He believed that actually it was the police contacting him. But what they did was they managed to use authority as the guiding principle. But what I would say is authority as the subconscious lever used to manipulate individuals is only one of six levers. Actually, there are multiple other levers that are successfully being used all of the time as a means to bypass people's natural defenses. So training people, continually educating people, is going to require a modicum of psychological training and defense by the sound of it. Well, I mean, the irony is, is that we will never 100% build enough defenses within people's psyche to be able to combat this. What we're talking about here are the subconscious levers that are ingrained into us over centuries and centuries of evolution. What we can do, what we can best do is get into a scenario whereby if you are asked for information, if you are asked to perform some sort of action, at least put that sort of natural defense to just stop and think. We do a lot of work in schools and you know, when I go to local schools and I talk to children, I always say three things, which is like a traffic light system, which is stop, think, and connect. You know, if we can start to ingrain that simple approach, which is if I receive that email, if I get a request to be your friend on a social media network through my inbox, stop. All right, why do I need to click that in my inbox? Let me go directly to the social media site, then connect. These are some of the steps that we can do, but we fall for social engineering scams every single day of the week, every single minute of the day almost. When you go out to the high street and you buy that sofa because the shop is telling you that they're closing down, right? When you go out and buy the double glazing because the guy's sitting there on his watch going, well, this offer expires in 20 minutes. You know, when you receive that email telling you that actually your bank account or your, or your online auction account is going to be disabled, all of these are subliminal subconscious techniques used to manipulate you to do something. And they will continue to do that and they will get more sophisticated as our defenses go up. In terms of the criminal landscape and those combating crime, it is a forever game of cat and mouse. That sounds like great advice. We need to be thinking about psychology as we attempt to better defend people. Raj, thanks very much for taking the time to speak with us today. For ISMG, I'm Matthew Schwartz. Thanks for joining us.